You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. It's December 15th, 2016, and I'm Ankit Panda, your usual host here at The Diplomat. And I'm joined by Prashant Parmeswaran, my colleague and our Southeast Asia and Asia defense editor. How's it going today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Good. It's a, it's a cold day here, but um, fortunately, we have a lot of hot flashpoints in the Asia Pacific on our agenda today. Uh, specifically, we're going to use this podcast to begin what will probably be a series of maybe two or three episodes like this, um, evaluating and assessing the legacy of the Obama administration as um, he prepares to leave office on January 20th. We're about a month out from the inauguration of Donald Trump as the next U.S. president. And uh, there's a lot to be said about what the Obama administration has done in the Asia-Pacific region specifically. Uh, there's a common observation that you'll hear about Obama, which is that in many ways he was the first U.S. Pacific president. Uh, his outlook um, towards the world was fundamentally looking out to the Pacific, where our former U.S. presidents have been mired down in conflicts in Europe, in the Middle East. And that's not to say that Obama wasn't. Certainly later in his second term, crises in Ukraine and Syria after the Arab uprisings especially drew some of his attention away from the Asia-Pacific. I think in a perfect world, though, for the Obama administration, you would have seen um, a primary focus on Asia in some ways. Uh, obviously, we're all familiar here at The Diplomat with the pivot, uh, which later became the rebalance to Asia, and the series of policies, uh, both on the economic and defense side that were launched under that initiative. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot to talk about here, Prashant. And I think, you know, it's important to be organized when we talk about this. So I think today, let's talk about uh, the main areas of concern in Asia from a security perspective. So on one hand, we kind of have this range of maritime disputes, in, especially in China's near seas, specifically in the East China Sea and the South China Sea, which we have both written about in great detail at The Diplomat. And there's a lot to be said about what the Obama administration has done and where the state of play sits today as the new administration prepares to come in. And the second issue that I think will be at the top of the next administration's agenda and certainly has been uh, at the top of the Obama administration's agenda in some ways in Asia is North Korea, which continues to march ahead with both its nuclear weapons program and its various ballistic missiles programs and poses in some ways the most direct acute threat to the United States. Uh, North Korea could be months away from operationalizing an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of delivering a nuclear warhead to the western coast of the United States, and it's actually closer than that to delivering nuclear weapons potentially to Anderson Air Force Base at Guam, a U.S. territory. So there's also a lot to talk about there. Um, but first, I think uh, we should begin with the maritime disputes uh, leg of this, Prashant. And we actually have a great peg here, uh, just, uh, just as we prepare to do this podcast, uh, new satellite imagery reported first by the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative showed that China has, for the first time, um, emplaced anti-aircraft guns on all seven of its artificial island possessions in the Spratly Islands. And uh, that's actually interesting because it marks uh, Xi Jinping breaking with the promise that he made alongside Obama in the White House Rose Garden in September 2015 that China would not militarize the Spratly Islands. Um, I won't go too much into, you know, how we got to where we are today in the South China Sea, since there's a huge amount of context there that's uh, definitely relevant. But I think a, a fair starting point here would be the Scarborough Shoal encounter between Philippines and China in 2012, right as Obama's second term was kicking off. 
Um, so Prashant, you know, if we were to assess where things stand in the South China Sea and how the Obama administration's policies have really helped shape the current status quo or, you know, have failed to actually shape it and failed to moderate China's behavior, um, you know, what's your take on that? How would you assess the success or the failure of this administration in the South China Sea? Yeah, I think the, the good starting point would be to sort of uh, contextualize how the South China Sea factored into the Obama administration's broader approach to Asia. The administration viewed the South China Sea as a growing problem with China's maritime assertiveness, but it was also very reluctant to let it disrupt a broader U.S.-China cooperation on other fronts that were important to it, like climate change, uh, or dominate U.S.-Asia policy more generally, right? So. Its approach is focused on building the maritime security capabilities of Southeast Asian states through the Maritime Security Initiative and other programs, getting together a group of global actors to stand up for this, this sort of rules-based international order, um, and then also getting regional states to sort out their own competing claims. Um, but I think the chief criticism of this approach is that it's much too little and far too slow, uh, that the Chinese are altering the military balance of power in the South China Sea. And they're doing so so far in their favor that effective control of the South China Sea has become a question essentially more of when rather than if, right? right. So then the other uh, component of this is that the Obama administration in terms of optics, you know, it leaves office with, if you look at the four claimants, uh, Southeast Asian claimants in the South China Sea, Brunei, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Vietnam, with the election of uh, President uh, Duterte uh, in the Philippines, uh, and the Philippines pursuing this, uh, you know, new engagement uh, with China, and you know, sort of downplaying the South China Sea more so than it was under the Aquino administration, its predecessor. Uh, it essentially has removed the most forward-leaning claimant in the South China Sea, which is also. Uh, a U.S. ally. And so it looks like, if, and if you look at uh, Brunei and Malaysia, those have been Southeast Asian states that have been a lot quieter. So essentially, it's only Vietnam among these four that's really standing out um, for a stronger U.S. position, a stronger uh, South China Sea position against the Chinese. So the optics don't look good. And I think there are broader uh, concerns about where the strategy is going. Right. Um, no, I think the point that you made initially that the Obama administration, you know, hasn't let the South China Sea issue completely override the diplomatic agenda with China is critical. And actually, within the administration, you know, Obama's gotten criticism on this from certain components of um, yeah. within the Department of Defense, certainly Pacific Command. We've heard leaks that Pacific Command in particular is a very strong proponent of more forward leaning freedom of navigation operations. You know, Admiral Harry Harris reportedly wants to carry out high seas assertions operations around mischief reef, something that a lot of um, observers and commentators on the South China Sea have recommended. But, you know, I mean, that does bring up the question of where this issue should stand in, uh, in the U.S. approach to China more broadly. I mean, obviously, the status quo policy, uh, which I think is worth recalling because I think some people forget where exactly the United States stands on the South China Sea. I mean, you know, Washington takes no position on the various sovereignty claims. Uh, it's primarily interested in freedom of navigation and having open sea lanes for both military freedom of navigation and for civilian commerce. Um, and with China, uh, as you correctly pointed out, you have the climate change issue, you have cyber espionage, which is uh, something that I think, you know, there's a good argument to be made that when it comes to the U.S. national interest, uh, the cyber issue might be uh, worth keeping up on the agenda higher than the South China Sea. 
Um, the North Korea issue, for example, is another area where the Obama administration has sought cooperation from China, particularly in the last year as North Korea has ramped up its activity, just as you know, we've seen a variety of significant developments in the South China Sea from China, not least of which is the latest uh, satellite imagery showing the anti-aircraft guns, but also you had the South China Sea ruling early this year, which Washington did stand by. But, um, you know, again, it took a while to see that fourth freedom of navigation operation. That was the first one to come after that ruling. So there is a real sense that while the administration recognized that this was an issue that it would have to deal with, it almost in a way ceded it to China as part of the premise. I mean, it said that, you know, there's really nothing we can do if China is to develop its possessions and add even, you know, airstrips, anti-aircraft guns. But what we can do is stand up for the rules-based order and for principles like freedom of navigation, which do matter to U.S. national interests. Um, yeah, and essentially what what is that? That has opened up uh, it to criticism that essentially what the Chinese have been doing is they have approached their assertiveness in the South China Sea very incrementally. Um, so you've seen them, you know, ta undertake periods where they've done very assertive things, but they've also calibrated this with, uh, you know, charm offensives to Southeast Asian states, particularly on the economic side. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one one of the chief criticisms of the Obama administration is that uh, they haven't found a way to address this sort of incremental assertiveness pattern. And, and the perfect example, as you brought up earlier, was, was after the actually said, all right, let's lower the temperature and uh, we're going to pursue the Philippines and, and we're going to calm things down. And the Obama administration, as with other Southeast Asian countries, played along with this because they hoped that, you know, the, the Chinese would be able to um, at least find some kind of uh, solution with Philippines and hope, hope would uh, calm, uh, calm down. But essentially what, what we've gone back to now is another pattern uh, where another or the Chinese are essentially uh, building up their own capabilities and in increasing their control of the South China Sea. So even as the Chinese change their tactics, um, the, the broader strategy uh, hasn't changed. And I think where the Obama administration uh, has gotten some of their tactics right uh, in terms of some of these freedom navigation operations, for example, that they've carried out periodically. The broader strategy, which is the strategic problem, is how do you impose costs on China sufficient enough to deter it from undertaking this behavior? And I think it's fair to say we haven't approached a point where the Chinese are sufficiently deterred. Right. And, you know, not all of that, um, not all of the broader factors regionally that affected the failure of this strategy were really, you know, something that you can blame the Obama administration for. I mean, you know, obviously you pointed out the election of Rodrigo Duterte. I mean, you know, if this ruling had come out with Aquino still yep. having a year in office, I mean, things would have been very different um, in in more ways than one. I mean, you wouldn't have necessarily seen, uh, you know, the Philippines-China new engagement after the ruling. I mean, the Aquino administration was incredibly pro-U.S., very pro, um, you know, the U.S. rules-based order, uh, initiated the ruling um, in uh, 2013 after the Scarborough Shoal incident. So clearly, I mean, losing Aquino uh, was pretty important here. And I think, you know, I mean, the sense that I got, and, you know, maybe you have a better idea of this, uh, you know, being in Washington, D.C. and, uh, you know, talking to uh, people who are in the halls of diplomacy in the Asia-Pacific um, more regularly than me. But, you know, I got a sense that the Duterte thing was a real curveball. I mean, it wasn't something that had really been foreseen. Um, the idea was more, you know, that this ruling would happen yeah. and then finally you would have the first significant international legal verdict against China, which would make cost imposition, as you correctly pointed out, um, much easier. Um, however, the complete opposite happened. Exactly. 
Yeah, that's definitely the sense that uh, most folks, I mean, most people, you know, I've been pointing out, uh, most people hadn't even heard of Rodrigo Duterte uh, when he was mayor. I mean, most, uh, e even some uh, U.S. policymakers were coming to terms with the fact that this guy was coming on the national stage and they had to deal with him. And I think many of them thought initially that, you know, he could be convinced uh, that maybe it was just rhetoric and it wasn't reality. But I think gradually this has really been a, a big curveball for not only U.S. policy but the region as well, because you know, as as we've talked about in previous podcasts, the Philippines is going to be chairing uh, ASEAN next year, and it's going to have to deal with uh, the South China Sea issue as someone who's going to be leading uh, as chair to come up with a consensus on the South China Sea issue. And as we know, in the last several years, ASEAN has had trouble coming up with a consensus position on the South China Sea issue. So that's going to be another interesting thing to watch. Right, right. And you know, like when, when you're evaluating the success or failure of what the Obama administration has done in the South China Sea, I mean, you know, if you consider the fact that the U.S. strategic end state in the South China Sea was really just having open sea lanes uh, for both military and civilian navigation and overflight, um, I mean, so far, you know, the Chinese understanding of that is a little bit different. China says that it supports freedom of navigation, but it clearly differentiates between military activity and civilian activity. For example, China says, you know, you don't really have to worry. We're never going to block civilian commercial yep. oil tankers, for example, from not being able to go from the Straits of Malacca to Japan, for example. Uh, but China obviously takes exception to regular U.S. naval patrols, uh, which is something that, you know, under international law is permitted. And the United States definitely conducts itself in a way that comports with uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, even though it hasn't ratified that yet. Um, so, you know, exactly. I, th I think things like the Freedom of Navigation patrols have done a decent job of reaffirming those norms, even if China, you know, continues to protest them and makes no real change to its position. And, you know, the shame about this ruling is, I mean, we're about, you know, six months out, uh, roughly from this ruling. And, you know, I mean, we were, uh, you know, um, us guys watched the South China Sea very closely, are interested in Asian security. I mean, you know, before the ruling, everybody thought that this was going to be a real moment, you know, a real watershed moment that would lead to a paradigm shift in how China's behavior is perceived in the region and how, um, you know, China moderates its costs. You know, a lot of commentators had noted that China doesn't do well in, you know, facing embarrassment internationally or facing, um, you know, reputational costs. And really, a lot of that didn't really come to pass. I mean, you had a lot of countries that supported the ruling, but didn't really insist that it was binding and final on the, on the claimants. Um, in fact, if you look at the list of countries that came down as strongly as the United States did, it's, uh, it's a very short list. Um, so unfortunately, I yeah. think, uh, you know, the administration could have done a little bit more internationally in sort of whipping up support for the ruling. But again, that's difficult when you're not party to UNCLOS and, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have that authority there. Yeah, and I think also the you know the, the final point I'll make is that um, the how you evaluate the administration's success or failure on the South China Sea question really depends on how you define U.S. interests in the South China Sea. Um, I think the administration defined it uh, in a lot more limited sense than uh, some of the other more hawkish folks did in terms of. And I think the, these more hawkish voices would see the South China Sea issue as a test case for China's rise and U.S. credibility in checking China's rise, right? So, um, and they would point out that, um, yes, freedom of navigation is absolutely important. Upholding the rules-based order is very important. But uh, Chinese control of the South China Sea would complicate uh, U.S. military planning um, and the space for the U.S. military. And, and the fact that the Chinese guarantee or, or say that they're not going to dis uh, disrupt freedom of navigation 
um, and it's not in their interest to do so today, uh, th- these voices would contend, you know, doesn't mean that they're not able to do that, you know, tomorrow. Right. And they would say, well, if uh, if the Southeast Asian countries can't count on the United States on the South China Sea, then, you know, how is U.S. credibility going to be affected in other domains? Obviously, you know, the, the literature and in international relations um, is pretty divided on whether credibility actually transfers across is- across issues and um across regions, right? Some people argue that the U.S. red line crossing in Syria also affected Asia policy, but there's, you know, if you look at the literature and international relations, there's very little evidence to suggest that credibility transfers in this way, but there is this perception issue that critics keep coming back to, you know? Right. I mean, the credibility thing actually seems to be a huge divide between academia and the policy world. Um, I'm personally a big critic, you know, I mean, like Daryl Press's work here is pretty great, um, which, you know, I think demonstrates pretty convincingly that the, uh, the argument for credibility is a lot weaker uh, than it might seem in the policy world. Uh, but, you know, a good yeah. example of the hawkish voices, I think, is, you know, um, Rubio's recent bill, for example, on sanctions. I mean, it's clearly, uh, you know, differentiates China from all the other claimants, recommends that the U.S. entirely change its policy and not taking positions on disputes, among other things. Um, so it's clear that, you know, um, that you're right, that the administration did define a minimal set of U.S. interests um, that were the absolute you know, sine qua non, without which the U.S. couldn't really operate um, in, in Asia without this baseline of free navigation overflight in the South China Sea. Um, it'll be interesting to see where the incoming administration goes with all this. Um, you know, very briefly, Prashant, before moving on to talk about North Korea, which is another issue, I do want to, you know, mention the East China Sea, which has also been interesting. I mean, here, again, 2012 is a critical year in the East China Sea. I mean, we saw the Scarborough Shoal incident in the South China Sea back then, but in August 2012, Japan decided to nationalize the Senkaku Islands to prevent them from falling into the hands of the ultranationalist mayor of Tokyo, Shintaro Ishihara, which would have probably made things a bit worse since he would have uh, prodded China over the dispute in some ways. But, you know, that led to an important period of a diplomatic freeze between China and Japan. I mean, there was a period of, I think, uh, 18 or 19 months where there was no high-level diplomatic contact between the two sides. You saw Japan scrambling jets at record levels since the end of the Cold War in the East China Sea, regular incursions into Japan's contiguous zone and territorial sea around these islands. And while things did cool down eventually with uh, Japan-China diplomacy picking up and trilateralism picking up with South Korea in the mix as well in the region, um, you know, the East China Sea does remain an important flashpoint as this administration prepares to leave. Obama, to his credit in 2014, you know, did clarify that the Senkakus would be covered under the U.S.-Japan alliance, which I think is a moment that's been mostly forgotten, but I think was actually pretty important in retrospect, uh, the U.S. sort of laying that out um, in terms of credibility. And here, the East China Sea is in some ways more of a Japanese story than the U.S. story. I mean, apart from offering his assurances, we've primarily seen Japan understandably take the lead there uh, since it administers the Senkaku Islands. Uh, We haven't really seen the U.S. Navy, for example, uh, conduct any sort of major patrols or exercises with the Japanese um, in, uh, you know, in or near disputed waters near the Senkakus. But what's your overall read here? I mean, um, do you think the East China Sea story is similar to the South China Sea story in many ways? Yeah, I think um, it, it's a good opportunity to compare the two. Um, I, I think you're you're absolutely right that uh, the reassurance to Japan uh, that the Obama administration provided was was a critical moment. And I think if if you're talking to the Filipinos, they would argue that while they would like a similar commitment uh, that the United States is going to stand by uh, their claims, uh, because there has been uh, some ambiguity about whether the scope of the mutual defense treaty covers that. Now there's very 
clear reasons why U.S. policymakers would want to avoid that because there are dis distinctions about uh, what the Japanese have and what the, what the Filipinos have as well. Um, but I think the comparison there is important. The second comparison I would make is that in the East China Sea, the military balance is a totally different picture because you have the strength of the U.S.-Japan alliance and Japan being a capable military power. And so the Chinese, uh, to a certain extent, have less room, much less room to maneuver. In the South China Sea, what you have is a group of you know, four claimants that have uh, very small militaries. And uh, with the exception of uh, Vietnam, uh, which is a notable exception, um, you know, the Filipinos, uh, the Philippines is one of the weakest militaries in, in Asia. Malaysia has that trouble uh, even keeping up with its modernization efforts. And, you know, Brunei has basically um, been very quiet on the South China Sea. So there is this void uh, in terms of the military balance in the South China Sea that gives the Chinese much more room to operate relative to the East China Sea. I think the final point I'd make about uh, East China Sea, South China Sea is that you know, there is a certain linkage here that, um, you know, military planners and security officials are aware of, right, where the Japanese have increasingly started to do things in the South China Sea um, and getting involved uh, in terms of strengthening their defense and security uh, ties with Southeast Asian countries. Mm -hmm. um, and the Chinese have made the case, uh, you know, if, if not uh, publicly, privately and also with their actions more so than words that if the Japanese play in the South China Sea that the Chinese are going to play more so in the East China Sea and complicate things for the Japanese there so that's a dynamic that's at play here and, and it's not exclusive to these two waters right I mean the Chinese and Indians have a similar dynamic right with right. the Indians play in in the South China Sea and, and the Chinese play in the Indian, Indian Ocean so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think um, one final point uh, that I'll just uh, emphasize here is that, you know, we've seen actually in the past six months, um, as activity from China has re-intensified in the East China Sea, as you noted, uh, Japan has been taking a broader role in the South China Sea. You know, the People's Liberation Army Air Force has been paying a lot more attention to the Miyako Straits, uh, to uh, the Bashi Channel, which runs between the Philippine island of Luzon and Taiwan. Um and, you know, for our listeners who are more familiar with uh, Chinese military strategy, they might be familiar with the first island chain concept, which is why, you know, the East China Sea takes on a particular level of strategic importance for China. Um, China is essentially chained in by this island, um, you know, by these uh, series of islands that aren't all entirely friendly to China. And uh, for China to have access to the Western Pacific, it needs to be able to maneuver militarily uh, with comfort through the few um, international waterways and airways that exist, uh, including the Miyako Strait and the Bashi Channel. So that'll be something to watch. We've actually noticed, I think every month for the past three months, uh, the People's Liberation Army Air Force has conducted exercises involving bombers and fighters and surveillance aircraft uh, through these waterways and, air and airways. So that'll be something to keep an eye on uh, going forward at least. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's, uh, let's uh, shift gears a bit and talk about um, at least what I think is uh, should be at the top of the agenda when it comes to Asian flashpoints, which is North Korea, um, which continues to march forward into uh, becoming the world's latest nuclear weapon state. Um, depending on your threshold for defining a nuclear weapon state, North Korea, by some measures, might already be there. We've seen a series of developments this past year uh, that um, you know I've written about quite a bit. We've also talked about on the podcast. Uh, we saw two nuclear tests this year. This became the first year uh, where North Korea carried out multiple nuclear tests. Um, it's currently on its fifth test. We're awaiting a potential sixth test next year, um, although Pyongyang seems to have uh, slowed down its pace of activity as the U.S. transition goes underway. 
And here I think there's a lot to talk about when it comes to policy, and there's a pretty vibrant debate right now as the new administration approaches office on whether U.S.-North Korea policy has just entirely failed. Um, so, you know, the status quo policy here has been imposed costs on Pyongyang, hoping to force it to make the first bona fide gesture towards denuclearization in line with the process that had launched under the, under the six-party talks, which are now long dead and nowhere near um, resumption. Um, there's a good case to be made that, you know, the the cost imposition strategy hasn't quite worked out with North Korea. Um, namely, we're seeing multiple nuclear tests. We've seen over 30 ballistic missile launches this year, including uh, a test of a submarine-launched ballistic missile, which could give North Korea an important survivable second strike capability. But yeah, so, uh, you know, I mean, we've seen all these developments with North Korea, but there's no sense that Pyongyang's behavior is about to change. I mean, obviously, Prashant, I think um, the North Koreans are expecting to see some sort of change in U.S. policy. There was a very interesting foreign, um, a North Korean foreign ministry memo that we saw recently that was very long, and it actually outlined every significant development in U.S.-North Korea interactions since Obama, um, uh, sorry, since uh, Kim Jong-un uh, came to... St came to the stage after Kim Jong-il died at the end of 2011. And, you know, it basically made the point that uh, the U.S. policy of strategic patience had fallen flat on its face and wasn't really getting anywhere. Uh, North Korea interestingly described it as facing strategic suffocation, which suggested that the cost imposition strategy is causing some pain for Pyongyang, but not that it will change its behavior. Essentially, the message that North Korea is trying to deliver now is that it's here as a nuclear weapon state and it merits recognition. And the conversation has to change from preventing nuclearization, since that's already happened, and come around to controlling North Korea and containing North Korea. So, you know, what's your read here on uh, on the Obama administration's policy, which really hasn't changed on North Korea in quite a while? Yeah, I, I think, you know, that uh, it's fair to say that, uh, you know, the North Korean threat has been something that's frustrated previous administrations before. But for an administration that uh, has placed so much emphasis on engagement with uh, troubling countries and has had successes in, you know, Cuba, Iran uh, and Myanmar, North Korea has been uh, the one challenge which has been very frustrating uh, for the Obama administration. And I think, you know, the strategic patience approach, which is, you know, imposing uh, sanctions in a, in a calibrated way to hope to get the North Koreans back to the table, you know, simply hasn't worked. Um, you know, uh, and the combination of engagement, pressure and deterrence against North Korea uh, hasn't stopped the pace at which we're seeing the North Koreans develop uh, their capabilities, right? And and it's developing at an alarming rate. And as you said uh, correctly, uh, the next U.S. president, you know, will not be able to tolerate the fact that the North Koreans will be able to reach the west coast of the United States, right, with a nuclear-tipped ballistic missile. Um, so, you know, there are, uh, in addition to that, uh, the Obama administration leaves office with transitions or political developments in three of the capitals, right, that are critical to resolving the challenge. You have Donald Trump entering into office in January. And the North Koreans, I think, are hoping, as you said, that there's going to be some dramatic change or shift uh, in U.S. policy, uh, that there might be some kind of engagement opportunity or return to six-party talks or something to that effect. Um, you have a new government in South Korea uh, with the domestic uh, political turmoil that's going on there. And you have the party congress in China later next year. Mm -hmm. So I, I, it, it seems like if you look at the big picture, 
the threat that North Korea poses is increasing very quickly, but the opportunities to affect a change in that, um, you know, are limited by these ver various uncertainties of the domestic level. So it's very worrying um, from that perspective. And then compounding that, um, as you alluded to, the strategic patience that the Obama administration has adopted, you know, if you look at, you know, what's been happening in Washington, there's growing impatience as to this approach where it's, you know, we're going to try a little bit of engagement, a little bit of pressure and see where this works. And so, you know, increasingly even moderate voices are calling for the United States to seriously consider options that a few years ago would be considered pretty radical, right? Like regime change um, and even, you know, potentially, um, you know, the, for the Trump administration to come up with a radically new approach to how it talks to North Korea and considering bilateral talks as well. Right. Just because this is something where the North Koreans already open uh, to something. But like you said, I mean, the key issue here is, um, you know, what is the U.S. willing to accept? I mean, is it willing to accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons state and then negotiate uh, other things on that basis? Right. And uh, what is the role that China is going to play with respect to the United States in terms of the leverage? Um, and obviously, there are some complications regarding that because we don't know what the next administration's approach is going to be with respect to China. But the Obama administration, I will say, you know, they put a tremendous focus on getting uh, more Chinese assistance on North Korea. And uh, I don't know that they've seen the returns that they would like to see for what they've given up. So I don't know if this is going to be something where the Trump administration is going to have much success. But what's clear is, as you pointed out, that the threat is ever rising. Yeah, no, that was a that was a very thorough set of comments. I actually left me with a few thoughts. I mean, the first I'll say is that your point about Obama's success with Iran, Cuba, and Myanmar is very well taken. I mean, bold foreign policy initiatives with rogue states always cost political capital in Washington. We certainly saw that with the Iran deal. Um, yeah. And, you know, there came a point, I think, with Rouhani's election in Iran where Obama, I think, you know, really doubled down and said that, okay— um, as far as the nuclear proliferation and disarmament agenda goes, uh, Iran is going to be it, and the Iran deal will be the legacy on that front. Unfortunately, um, you know, there might be an argument to be made that that was a miscalculation given what we've seen out of North Korea, which in many ways is a more troubling regime internally as well and how it thinks about its position regionally and its uh, domestic sense of insecurity. Uh, the second thing I'll say uh, that I wanted to mention is actually, um, you know, one of the other things that Obama has done, apart from continuing the U.S. policy of strategic patience and cost imposition through sanctions, is bolstering missile defense for allies. And the focus on missile defense in some ways, you know, acknowledges that, that strategic patience hasn't been working because, you know, you've seen the deployment of the terminal high-altitude area defense system, or you haven't seen the deployment. You've seen the decision to make the deployment. Uh, I, I only point that out because... The South Korean political crisis actually makes it possible again that we won't see the deployment of the THAAD system, which China has famously uh, very loudly protested against. And, you know, you've seen um, efforts by the Obama administration to increase uh, trilateral intelligence sharing between Seoul, Tokyo and Washington, which is actually also extended to their cooperation on missile de detection and interception. I mean, obviously, for both of these capitals, um, the North Korean threat is a lot more proximate. North Korea's shorter-range missiles, um, including the Nodongs and the Scuds, uh, could be capable of delivering nuclear missiles to Tokyo and Seoul a lot quicker than they might be able to deliver them to Los Angeles or Guam. Um, so obviously yeah. the missile defense focus there has been important. Um, and, you know, now we're hearing reports that Japan is also looking into purchasing THAAD from the United States as well. 
Um, but you know, missile defense again is is treating the symptoms and not treating the disease here. Um, and when it comes to treating the disease, strategic patience has really been the only treatment that this administration has attempted. And you know, there's another reason for that. I mean, I've had a uh, you know Joel Witt on this podcast a few times, and he's a uh, famous. Right. I mean, he's famous for his dovish views on North Korea, and he's actually been one of the biggest proponents of talking to them. But you know, I mean, when I asked Joel why none of these administrations have done it when there's such a good case to be made for it in some ways, uh, the simple answer is again political. I mean, talking to North Korea, especially bilaterally, is an acknowledgement of essentially their nuclear weapon status in some ways. Um, if you talk to them about nuclear weapons, you're acknowledging that they have them and they're a state with nuclear weapons, and that in itself is politically very troubling. Yeah, exactly. And I and I think you know the the the, the key question for uh, U.S. policymakers to think about is. Um, on the one hand, you have these uh, efforts that are on the underway with respect to what the U.S. is doing with its allies in Northeast Asia um, and some of the trilateral cooperation that's coming out and trying to extract more leverage from the Chinese. Um, but on the other hand, you have the North Koreans developing their capabilities. And, you know, if you look at it on balance, the question is which can move quicker? Because if the threat is moving much quicker than uh, the degree to which the United States can get Chinese cooperation and can, you know, cooperate with its allies to forge uh, an effective deterrent against North Korean threat, then that is a concern for the United States. And I think that that is the key question. And I think that, you know, it ties nicely to the South China Sea and East China Sea question as well. A lot of these problems are questions of when you're evaluating the successes and failures of an administration, you have to ask, you know, is the strategy that's being developed to counter the particular threat or challenge uh, moving at a quick enough pace enough such that the challenge can be addressed? Or is the challenge moving quicker such that, you know, it's it's almost outliving, right, or or um, or developing much faster than uh, the strategy that's designed to combat or address it? And I think that's the key question for North Korea. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, increasing the pace at which the United States can afford to address these problems also imposes other costs elsewhere. I mean, not only in terms of the broader agenda in certain cases, as we certainly talked about with the South China Sea, um, but with North Korea, um, you know, it's just a range of challenges with if the United States is even politically ready to, to you know, take yeah. on what it takes to address the problem directly. Um, so, Prashant, one- yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. One final point I wanted to make is, I mean, an additional variable uh, with respect to the Trump administration is I think, you know, when Obama had a conversation with uh, Trump uh, initially, once he had won the election, uh, he impressed upon Trump uh, the importance of the North Korean challenge and the North Korean threat. Um, But the key I think we need to watch out for in the next administration is, you know, North Korea is going to seek to prove that it is a major challenge and a major threat. That's just its record of behavior. But, you know, we don't know yet to what extent uh, North Korea as a threat or challenge will factor into the Trump administration. I think, you know, with the Obama administration coming in, North Korea was also a major threat. And now it's going to be a major threat uh, for the Trump administration. But there are other challenges, too, like the Islamic State. And we're not even sure in terms of the U.S.-China relationship with all these variables that we're seeing, how much the North Korean uh, variable will will factor in. So that's something to watch. Definitely. Um, You know, so as we uh, close out the podcast, I kind of wanted to ask you for your overall sense of, you know, when it comes to the maritime disputes in North Korea, how you'd sort of, you know, rate the outgoing administration broadly. I mean, I kind of get the sense that we're both kind of lukewarm, um, you know, overall trending positive, but obviously, um, you know, maybe a few disagreements on how the administration decided to approach specific challenges. Is that is that a fair assessment of your view? 
Well, I, I think I, I would say I, I'd give them a, you know, if we were to grade it, I would say, you know, a B or B minus. Um, I think that, uh, you know, they've, they've seen what they've been successful at doing is not overreacting to challenges, you know, whether it's the South China Sea um, or respect to China, North Korea and, and the East China Sea. Um, and that's important because you, A, you don't want to overreact because that might uh, cause the United States to get ahead of its interests. And also, you want the United States to be able to back up the pledges and commitments that it makes. Right. But on the other hand, I think the big concern is when you're thinking long term and you're not addressing these short term challenges, you essentially leave it for the next administration to address it. And then you open up the opportunity for more hardline and hawkish views to come into the picture. And that might essentially undermine your initial objective, which is to prevent these hawkish views from taking hold in the first place. So I think, you know, that's where I would fault the Obama administration. Obviously, these are complex issues, but that strategic dilemma wasn't really addressed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the um, and I think the cost sensitivity of this administration and its propensity to avoid overreaction is famous. I mean, Asia is maybe not the place where we've seen that the best. I mean, you know, you look at the Middle East, uh, Syria, I mean, how the administration has handled its yep. reactions to threats there. I mean, I think those examples really illustrate how this administration has thought about uh, very difficult challenges and the application of uh, U.S. power and diplomacy in resolving them. And uh, that's certainly poured over into Asia. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, there's a lot that we could have expanded this conversation to include. I mean, you know, there was a whole economic leg to all this. I mean, uh, especially with, with you know, balancing China, you had the TPP and all that we've already talked about. I mean, uh, many lost opportunities here as well. Um, but Prashant, I think um, I think we'll look to come back and maybe talk a bit more about the uh, other challenges that this administration has had to face and maybe some of the diplomatic accomplishments um, in uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia. Um, and maybe we can also revisit some of the the trilateral initiatives that we've seen crop up as well. Um, but uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Really enjoyed the discussion today. Yeah. Great. Um, and for listeners, uh, definitely don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating on iTunes if you like the podcast. Um, if you're interested in hearing something on this podcast or having a specific aspect of Obama's legacy discussed in Asia, uh, definitely reach out to either me or Prashant on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is probably the best way to do that. Uh, but if not, we will be back later in December, hopefully, with more. Uh, there will be a little bit of a hiatus on the podcast for uh, about a week or so, but we'll be back with more content on the Obama administration's legacy and other challenges in Asia. Thanks for listening.